0: late night.
1: This month with an encore Presentation of Angela Beaufield. Yes, we are playing More music and we've got Another part of our exclusive interview with That quiet Storm legend coming up I mean this is all part of the Pandemic, right? We, we do, this is the first Time we've ever played an artist back to back But uh, interviewing Angela Beaufield was such a highlight of my Year <laughs> that I wanted to Extend the joy and so I Have been in an Angela Beaufield Bubble for the last two months uh, the song you just heard, It's Something About You, and it's from Angela Bofield's third album, her first album with Arista Record. She mentioned that Clive Davis, uh, she met Clive Davis long before she was signed to his, to even her first record contract. Uh, one day she walked into his office and she played him her song, I Try, and uh, it wasn't even finished yet, and he said, my God, you've written a classic R&B song. I mean, Five Davis is actually at the top of the record industry, so that must have been high praise for someone who was a new artist. And I think her wonderful writing skills, along with her strong, distinctive alto, are what helped Angela Beaufield become a mainstay on the Quiet Storm radio format. But she doesn't just use her voice to sing. She uses her voice to advocate for her own health. Angela Bofield experienced two strokes about 10 years ago, but she still has a positive, humorous personality and that fighting spirit, which you'll quickly hear in my upcoming interview. Um, Throughout the podcast, we're also going to be featuring more great music from Angela Bofield, and this album is the essential Angela Bofield album, courtesy of Sony Music. My other guests include Angela Bofield, Patricia Eddie Gentle, Yvette Petty from Harlem 7 Hats, we love that Yvette and I teamed up on faith-based outreach years ago. She's back tonight to tell us how to coordinate a hat with a mask um, for the holiday season. And then, as a special surprise, so kind of a glamour, fearless moment, we have a drag queen, health heart health advocate, Mother Chucka, who resides in San Francisco and Palm Springs, is going to share his, her health uh, adventures with us regarding heart and help lift our spirits as well. So throughout the podcast, you're going to be hearing more Angela and Bofield, but right now I'd like you to take a minute and check out 5 equals 10 men's underwear and leisure wear merchandise. 5 equals 10 is donating 10% of their company profits to DivaVetic. Help us make this world a better place. Go to org for more details. November is National Diabetes Awareness Month, and we're going to, Celebrate with music, which we do on every podcast You better have a good icon <laughs> I, I, just, I can't tell you how much I enjoy Angela Bofield But her initial success uh, on GRP Records Prompted Clive Davis to sign her to, Arista, uh, to the Aristotle Record label Where she had a streak of hits um, Including Too Tough, Break It to Me Gently I'm On Your Side, and our next song This stirring top 20 pop hit Tonight I Give in, uh, courtesy of Sunny Music Let's listen
0: Walk walked into
1: I love the sound of the quiet storm. <clears throat> I'm catching my breath for a minute because I just love her voice. Uh, I'm Mr. Diva Bedeck. You know, I'm going to be celebrating World Diabetes uh, Day on Saturday, November 14th, with a virtual outreach event with Neva White at Thomas Jefferson University Hospital and Jill Weisenberger, who's been a guest on Diva Bedeck's virtual Zoom parties. Have you checked out our Zoom parties yet? We've gone virtual, everybody. Uh, I'm going to have a, our own event next week, our Tea Party in celebration of National Diabetes Awareness Month on Tuesday, November 17th from 7 to 9 p.m. You can register for that at Eventbrite. This whole idea of the Tea Party comes back to when we used to do face based outreach, and, yes, we worked with Abetta Petty from Harlem's Heaven Hat. She'll be on the show, the Zoom. You'll get to see all the hats and masks she's talking about tonight. Or You could visit her right now if you're in New York City in Bryant Park. Is going to start a pop-up store next week uh, right near the library. And also we're going to have um, on our tea party, we'll have the image and style advisor, Catherine Schuler. She's going to show us how to make all those wonderful scarf ties that Dr. Bricks uh, has made in all those White House briefings. I don't know if you ever watched those White House briefings, but Dr. Bricks really does know how to glam more, fear less. She has a new scarf every day of the week. And so Catherine agreed that she would kind of unlock the code for us and show us what to do with a scarf and then of course we have tessie t owner rose hall will be joining us she'll be telling us about how tea has been uh, very helpful for her to meditate and find calm especially in what's going on right now so that's what's coming up for us that's all coming up next tuesday november 17th you can register at eventbrite it's totally free i'd love to see you and i'm really looking forward to it um I'm looking forward to it as much as the third part of my exclusive interview. You could hear the first two parts of my Angela Bofill interview on last month's podcast. You know, strange thing that happened is there was a random article about her passing about a week after we aired the first part. Thankfully, it wasn't true. And um, it's interesting, though, because... This next part, I'm talking to Angela Bofield about uh, not only her favorite album that she's recorded, we're talking about Rough Times, Angels, COVID, and Luther Vandross, and uh, this is a hard part for me to hear, because I just have to tell you, um, before we play it, that you know Luther suffered a stroke, and um, I was one who found him, and so... Everything I do at Diabetic is because when I took him to emergency, they told me that Luther's stroke could have been prevented. Thankfully, Angela Beaufield, when she had her stroke, her, her daughter was right there and rushed her to the hospital, and was and helped her on her health journey, which you'll hear. So it's just so full circle for me to be able to. Uh, bring a peer of Luther Vandross to you and have her take a minute to talk about her personal and professional life with us on this podcast. So let's listen to my interview with Angela Bokka. Your parents were musicians and vocalists. You, yes. Music is part of your journey, and you have such an amazing body of work. I mean, it, it, when, you, when you look back, what uh, especially since we're playing the uh, music from your first two albums, what from those two albums really stands out to you? Is there a moment or a song or even a riff in one of those songs that you go, know, that's it, that's really, I love that.
2: Well, my favorite album of, my, of myself, Angel in the Night, you know. Big deal nowadays, angels. <laughs> and uh, I believe in angels, you know.
1: I love hearing you talk about your music. I, I love the fact that you even had one of your friends, Valerie Simpson, submitted a song, Rough Times, Asher and Simpson, on your first album, Angie. So even in that way, you were gracious to involve some of your friends, I mean, rather talented friends, we should tell everyone. Is that your idea, to bring them on board and ask them to submit something for that album?
2: Yes, yes. And, you know, every uh, cast and call, you know, songwriters, you know, a lot of demos are, are here He and uh, Valerie, uh, Valerie, Simpson, uh, submitted uh, "Rough Times." You yeah. know, song in the ages, huh? Twenty twenty. <laughs>
1: yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's getting us by. You're right. It really does capture that moment for sure.
0: <laughs>
1: like you said, both albums really speak to you. Uh, give the complete sense of who you are. Uh, musically, not only vocally and as a songwriter, but also pay homage to your history, your family's uh, history with your Cuban and Puerto Rican roots. A lot of music critics are looking back on these specific albums you did with GRP, as well as uh, one of your label mates, Phyllis Hyman, in saying that you two laid the groundwork for Anita Baker's critically acclaimed rapture and the success she had, because the, the two of you were combining soul and R&B and jazz and kind of laid the foundation for her to then build her success from. How do you react to that? I'm just curious when you look back.
2: I oh, met Anita Baker uh, uh, once. Uh, Anita Baker attended my uh, concert. a big fan of Anita Baker. I love her album, a Rapture. <laughs> you know, Patti Austin, you know, music I feel the music, a love language in love. I love love.
1: So I'd like to just ask you, if we can, um, I want to ask you for a few words of inspiration to send to our audience tonight who might be struggling with health issues. I mean, you are, Angela Beaufil, you're a beautiful uh, songwriter, vocalist, and also just such a strong spirit. Uh, what can you tell of some of our fans tonight who probably need to hear some inspiration from you as you said during these rough times?
2: Well, every moment counts, you know. And, uh, not wasted uh, negative uh, energy, you know. Happy. I a- work, you know. Uh, this too a pass, you know. And, uh, hang on. <laughs> hang on. I appreciate the sky every day, you know. Awesome sky because, uh, God paint a soul sort of the sky, but beautiful every day a God to paint a picture you know, enjoy it, you know
1: that means so much to me, you know, I hear you speaking, and um I miss Luther van so much, and I wish uh I I could have more time with him uh like you, and it's it it just means so much to. Myself and our audience that you would come on And share some of your experiences with us So that we could help empower other people To keep their house at home And learn how to uh, prevent or delay a complication From occurring like strokes
2: My pleasure Also, don't worry about Luther Because around in the spirit around You know, never die You know Another plane, you know a still Earth, a, a different plane You know my uh, my mother passed it on, passed away in twenty ten. But uh, I still, a spirit, to her as a spirit. You know, I feel it. You
1: know. Yeah. No. You're right, and, and I absolutely feel that. And uh, you know, we're keeping the legacy alive. His family is doing the music. We're we're keeping his legacy alive uh, with using his story to help and motivate others. And it's important, you know, because people wonder how these things are connected. And you know, I'm just so grateful that your daughter was right there with you when you were uh yeah. in crisis. You could be there. I wish yeah. I could have been for And it's hard, isn't it, sometimes when your body lets you down? I mean, that's it's a hard thing okay. to overcome. You take your body for granted I'm sure maybe you didn't because you have such an extraordinary talent, but for most of us we we tend to take our bodies for granted.
2: Yes. Yeah. But uh Every day, I pray a uh, uh, thankful living a moment, every moment counts. And, uh, you know, uh, I love my body. <laughs> you know, I'm grateful to have it.
1: It's amazing. And, you know, the sounds you make with your voice is just so unique. It's incredible. You know, to me, when I look at, uh, when I hear your music, I know exactly who it is. And I don't feel like that's so common today. What is it about that? Is there? Do you think there's a, they record vocals differently today, or do you think some? Why do you think some of the, so many distinctive voices came out of the era you were a part
2: of? I don't know her very distinctive voice. Ali, also, Alicia Keys. You know, happening <laughs> different time. You know, maybe uh, this is. I uh, know. I hate to say that. Because a uh, uh, COVID, maybe aspire a new generation of artists, you know, <laughs> musical, art, heart, you know, uh, um, uh, helped calm the spirit, you know, to prize, you know. You know, what has,
1: this been, what has this been like for you with the sheltering in? And I know you live in California, so not only dealing with the sheltering in from COVID, but you're also dealing with all the uh, fires. How has that affected you and your family?
2: Well, you know, quarantine, <laughs> you know, I love my room, <laughs> I love a TV, <laughs> you know, this to the past, you know,
3: well, also
2: incredible, I, wonder, I wake up, a sky red, <laughs> wow, you know, but uh, now a uh, blue skies again, you know, uh, air clearer up, you know, uh, have a, a rain dance. Because uh, expecting rain, uh, hopefully.
1: <laughs> I hope so, too. we should tell everyone once again please check out um, Angela Bofield's Live from Manila, her 2006 uh, recording. And it's available at angela-bofield.com. So that song, uh, that album includes a lot of your signature songs uh, at what you said, at one of your favorite places, the Philippines. So I think it would be a great thing to go to your website. You could download that or buy a hard copy of it on your website. Thank you, Angela, both okay. again for being on the show Thank tonight. Thank you, Beth. Again, you have been, you're part of the soundtrack of my life and I know so many others and we appreciate having you on the show.
2: Thank you. God bless.
1: All right. Well, you heard my interview. I, I mean, I still have chills about it. A, a woman who tells us that this too shall pass, just that fighting spirit, everything she's been through. Uh, We're so grateful she's still with us. I hope she's listening tonight. And uh, we're going to stop, look, and listen to our heart for a minute uh, before we get on the show. This song was written by Tom Bell and Linda Creed, and it was originally recorded by the Philadelphia Soul Group, The Stylistics. Here's Angela Bofield's take on Stop, Look, and Listen to Your Heart, courtesy of Sony Music. U.S. Diabetes late night later on. Uh, I'm your host, Mr. Divaberg, by the way. And later on, we'll be talking about heart health with San Francisco uh, Palm Spring, drag queen Mother Chaka. But right now, we're going to turn the spotlight on National Diabetes Awareness Month and World Diabetes Day. Uh, before I bring in my next guest, I'm going to beat her out for a minute. The theme for World Di- Diabetes Day is Nurses and Diabetes. Okay, and the campaign is aiming to raise awareness for the crucial role that nurses play in supporting people with diabetes. I just want to say right now, uh, Patricia Addie gensel is a registered nurse and a certified diabetes educator, and she has, was the first <clears throat> diabetes educator who I did not know who, who worked on "Diabetic makeover your diabetes back in the Fox Theater with me in 2005 or 2006. Uh, we met, and I just, oh, my gosh, how do I say this? She believed in me. And she stayed with uh, that program. We brought her on. She continued for the three years we did that program. And since then, she's been on all of these podcasts. And there would be no diabetic without uh, this woman. So when they said, to, when I found out that the theme for World Diabetes Day was the nurse and diabetes, I wanted to change that to the nurse and diabetic because we've had an incredible partnership with one of the most amazing, friendly, uh, down-to-earth educators. And for those of you who turn in every month, you know how she takes a very complicated idea around diabetes management, which, as you heard me say to uh, Angela Bofield, when your body lets you down, what do you do? Well, you want to meet someone like Patricia addy Gentle, because she's the person who gives you the support, the encouragement, the information, and the motivation to climb more fear of so it is my privilege to invite the nurse in diabetes on the show. Please welcome Patricia addy Gentle. Hello, Patricia.
4: Hello, Max. How are you?
1: I'm fantastic. I, I just want to say I'm so grateful for you and everything you do for diabetic and everything you do in Atlanta for all the people living with at risk and affected by diabetes. I, I think uh, so highly of you, and I just appreciate you so much.
4: I appreciate that introduction. You were just I mean, I, I wondered for a minute if you were actually talking about me. But that was just uh that was just a lot of things of you said a lot of things about me that I have not thought about myself, but I do appreciate you seeing quality in what I do. And thank you for continuing to have me as a part of your team.
1: Well, you know, Patricia, this has been a hard year for all of us, and specifically for you. And uh, it would be—it's important for me for you to know that. I just count Thank you on so you, much. and it, it means so much. So, you know, a lot of people count on nurses, and according to the World Health Organization, nurses account for 59% of all the healthcare professionals, and they estimate that the global workforce totals 27 million professional nurses. Nurses are often the first and sometimes only health professional that people with diabetes interact with when they're uh, diagnosed with diabetes. So, Patricia, as a nurse, as a working nurse, we're going to talk more about your history of how you got into the profession, but as your nurse, as a nurse, and as also a certified diabetes educator, have you experienced that, where you are really the first person there when someone's getting diagnosed with type 1, type 2 diabetes? Yes,
4: yes multiple times, many, many times. Um, When someone is diagnosed, even before the education, I guess, or or before anything sinks in, especially if it's type 1 or even a type 2 who um, is experiencing extremely high blood sugars where insulin is needed, uh, usually it's a nurse who comes in to teach that insulin injection technique. And so... Even before I was certified as a diabetes educator, I can recall many, many times when I was the person tasked with that particular duty to teach someone insulin injection technique. As a certified diabetes educator, of course, uh, my strategies and what I teach and the way I teach and the information that I cover has changed drastically. Uh, So there is a big difference. In having your encounter with a registered nurse as opposed to a registered nurse who is a certified diabetes educator, um, I, I so see that difference in my own experience. So, how did it change? Give us the before and after. Um, before I really knew diabetes as well as I know the pathology and you know what's happening and and that type of thing the technique is what was emphasized this is how you do it a b c d but there was no uh well I won't say no emphasis but not as much emphasis on complications or what may happen if if you're not uh eating a meal with your insulin injection or timing that meal properly, or changing insulin injection sites. Of course, as a person's journey in diabetes evolves, they have multiple visits, and that information surely will come, even if their first encounter may not be with someone who's certified. But I feel that now all of that kind of information is necessary, even at the very beginning. They need to know even if they're going to have a follow-up appointment in two or three days you still need to talk about the hypoglycemia and what to do how to react to the hypo how to react you know in case of emergencies when do you come back into the office when can you just call your doctor when do you need to show up at a hospital so you know what's an emergency how to correct it if the blood sugar is low there are things that you can do or prior to uh, contacting your doctor even.
1: I have to say, though, it it sounds like it would be an information overload because I would think the other thing that might have changed from how you used to do things to today is the emotional component. I mean, everyone I know who's been diagnosed with diabetes, the minute they hear that diagnosis, their heart drops uh, and they, they stop listening. So I wonder, Absolutely. you know, I, I mean, I I agree with the information you're giving, but I mean, as you you know, you've been with us all these years. We we focus so much on the emotional side, the mental side, the attitude side, uh, around this. I I, I think um, I'm curious when you first meet these people, what is their emotional state?
4: Uh, it, it depends on the person, but there are some who are really 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 um not ready for the information there are others who have experienced diabetes in their family and they know a little bit so they are pretty receptive to the things that you're saying although it's overwhelming and they're thinking you know this couldn't be happening to me or i thought i would escape it although there are other family members who are diagnosed but yes when you first encounter a person Um, on that first encounter, emotions are usually all over the place. And like I say, it depends on the person. You know, some people handle stress a little differently than others, but uh, there are some that you really have to have multiple visits or multiple contacts. There are some who I will call. I'll have a phone number and call them to check on them to make sure that they heard what I said, Or that they are able to follow through on the procedures that we've talked about. Uh, One of the worst encounters I've had was in an intensive care unit when I had a physician who actually wanted me to do the whole nine yards of of education which is totally not uh, the right time for that type of education to go on so you have to pretty much deal with the survival skills. But like I say, the hypoglycemia and what to do in case of hypoglycemia, especially when you're talking insulin, that's the kind of thing that has to be covered because that is a matter of survival. But basic survival skills is is pretty much all that they can handle at the initial onset. And how about
1: you? So let's turn the table. It has to be overwhelming for you. I mean, you just said, like, you have a lot of information to give someone in order to feel like you're uh, maintaining your profession and and feel, you know, that you're uh, satisfying your conscience. That's not the right word, but you know what I mean? So how is it for you? Like, what? I mean, this has to be overwhelming for someone to come into a room and have someone who – Like you just said, has a lot to know. Uh, Needs a lot needs to learn a lot. Specifically, if they're living with type one, about hypos and hyperglycemic moments, and also just like we were saying, the emotional side, they might have a ton of questions. So, tell us what it's like for you.
4: It it can be overwhelming for me as well, you know. And there are a lot of tools that are available that um, you know we can give and we can um, have hotlines or whatever, especially when it comes to the glucose meter. Um, whatever meter they're using, I always refer them to the 800 number or the toll-free number on the back of that meter because sometimes they will get home and they don't um, remember even how to start doing a blood glucose test. So it, it, and I always try. It's not always possible, but whenever I'm providing education, it is preferable to have a family member or a significant other, somebody who is able to listen as well, so that that person may remember a little bit more than what the the client that you're dealing with will remember. But yes, it can be really overwhelming if it were not for those tools. And the extra additives that we can, you know, a handout or some type of printed material to emphasize what we are saying verbally and demonstrating, so that they can visually see, it still can be very overwhelming for the uh, educator or provider, as well as for your patients.
1: And And sometimes you know, do you want to become a nurse?
4: Um well when i was in high school it was kind of like i knew that healthcare was the way that i was leaning but i actually was interested i was a biology major uh, my first year in college and i was leaning towards becoming a physician i lived in a grew up in a rural area of georgia and my parents took me to the hospital the local hospital and I was fortunate because I was escorted into the director of nurse's office, and we had a long conversation about how I could begin my career in healthcare. care. And um, although she knew that I was leaning towards being a physician, she kind of twisted the way I thought about it and encouraged me to become a nurse. And she gave me so many incentives that um, – I was willing I started as a CNA. She provided um you know the educational uh route for me to get certified as a CNA and then um she gave me schedules that accommodated my school schedule when I was in high school as well as in college and health care is all that I know. I have never worked in any other area except for healthcare. I started at the local hospital At age 17 and spring break Christmas break I was at the hospital working and like I say my schedule was pretty much strategically planned so in addition to that she promised that if I went to a nursing program because we were so professionally poor in the area and nurses were needed we had very few registered nurses so she made sure that I was able to tap in on the resources that the hospital provided for nurses to get scholarships and tuition reimbursement. And everything just went well from that point on. And, and what I got was her in the... name,
1: just so we could give, give her the full shout-out? What was her name? Sure.
4: Her name was Teresa Shavaria. and she was <laughs> well, a I wonderful... Know. I'm Wonderful
1: Teresa. mentor. I, a, I don't know where she is today, but wow, what a legacy you gave Teresa. I mean, I just, uh, again, uh, Patricia, I just have to say, amazing. So then, I'll just fast forward as to what made you want to go become a certified diabetes educator?
4: Well, like I say, even before I was a certified diabetes educator, even before I knew that there was such a title, I had a physician. Um, that I worked with who was a diabetologist. And I was doing telephone triage with Kaiser. And this physician approached me and he said he was in need of a, he called it a diabetes resource nurse. And he wanted someone who knew diabetes and knew when his patients were getting in trouble and be able to advise them properly when they need to go to the emergency room rather than telling them to wait until the next day and come in the office and be seen or whatever or if there was not an appointment for a couple of days down the road so he selected me and asked if i would be willing because he said you know i've watched the type of work you do and i feel like you can really do this so i started at that point to do uh courses and learn as much about diabetes as I could, and it developed to the position of a certified diabetes educator, and I've loved every minute of it.
1: You could hear it in your voice. There's no doubt <laughs> that uh, you found you you were chosen for the fields you work in. And, and like I said, we're so grateful that you are. And with that, are you willing to go into the letter grab bag and answer a question from one of the divas? Sure, sure. Okay, we've got. Let's see, reaching in here. It's Elaine from Mississippi. Hello, Elaine. Thanks for tuning into the show. Um, I'd like to talk about this issue. I'm living with type two diabetes, and I don't have to take insulin any longer. So, is my diabetes better? Is my diabetes gone? What does that mean? Should I know? Should I be aware of anything? That's Elaine from Mississippi.
4: Okay, as as a person with a diagnosis of diabetes know um, your your diabetes is not gone. What that means is that you have better management, and so insulin is no longer needed. If you will continue your treatment plan, if you continue to test your blood sugars, um, if you're able to provide those numbers to your physician or you know you keep your A1Cs within um, safe levels, if you're at that 7 or below, then you stand a good chance of maybe not requiring the insulin, but you still have diabetes and you still have to manage it with the way that you eat, with your activity regimen, um, as well as other medications that you're taking. And so keeping those numbers in um, accurate levels, the blood sugar that includes your blood glucose, you want to look at your A1C, you also want to look at your cholesterol and lipid levels. So just make sure that you and your doctor are managing together and that you are really on track. And perhaps, hopefully, we will hope that you will not Have to go back to insulin It is possible that you might But it doesn't mean that your diabetes Is gone But you are in better management of it
1: All right, I appreciate that advice Elaine thanks again for tuning in To Diva Talk Radio on Blog Talk Radio Or checking us out on iTunes Patricia you're coming back a little bit later Because we're going to talk all about metabolic syndrome Those are the two key words For National Diabetes Awareness Month And you're going to help figure out what that means in a little while. But first, uh, we're going to hear some more music. Then we're going to meet ha- Harlem's Heaven's Hat, Yvette's Teddy Gosh, I can't get my words out tonight. Um, find out about how to wear a mask with a hat and be stylish all through the holiday season. Um, and then we're going to meet the drag queen, who is uh, an advocate for heart health, Mother Chaka. But here is a song that... Uh, Angela Bofill talked about her teaming up With Boss Gags on our last podcast In the first part of our interview uh, Boss Gags is an American singer Songwriter and guitarist He became prominent for a series of albums from the late 70s Like Lido Shuffle And Lockdown Here is her duet with Boss Gags Entitled Ain't Nothing Like The Real Thing Courtesy of Sony Music I've got your picture
0: Hanging on the wall But
1: To get a little glam more, fear less. That's the real thing at Diva Medic. Uh, and before I bring in our next guest, I want you to know that ANG Model Management is presenting Models and Diabetes, a fashion show, on Saturday, November 14th. That's World Diabetes Day with our friend Doris Hobbs. It's on Facebook. It's ANG Model Management. Make sure to check out uh, Models and Diabetes. All right, our next guest. <laughs> I'm so excited. For the past 20 years, she's been designing hats, and now she designs masks. In their uptown New York studio, Harlem's Heaven's Hat Shop, perhaps have captured worldwide attention and been worn by the Kentucky Derby and the Royal Ascot in England. Plus, you could see them at the New York City Easter Parade. Uh, recently, she put her design skills to work, like I said, making fabulous functional face masks. Please welcome to the show Yvette Petty. Hi, Yvette.
3: Hi, Max. How are you?
1: <laughs> I'm so good. So good to have you. I miss seeing you this year at the Easter Parade.
3: I know we missed so many great events this year, but looking forward to next year.
1: What has it been like for you as a, a small business owner this whole time? Because uh, you know you rely on a lot of foot traffic up in Harlem. I know you also are going to be doing a pop up shop in uh, Bryant Park, but tell us what has it been like as a small business owner with COVID.
3: Well, it was very difficult. It still is. Um, I closed my physical store for four months. And I, uh, well, you know, the buzzword is pivot. So I had to pivot and uh, concentrate on my website and add more content to the site and uh, started making masks. And I started making masks to match some of my hats as well as masks that could be considered couture pieces, very special ones that have Swarovski crystal and just vintage brooches and fun elements to them. So um, it has been difficult, but, you know, you must always have a plan B.
1: Absolutely. All right, so let's – Let's get right into the mask because, you know, it is – don't get down, get diva is the theme of this little segment. So here we are, forced to wear a mask. And like you said, you know, the holidays coming. Not everyone wants to wear a black mask, although there's nothing wrong with that. So tell us some of the hot designs that you have, and then uh, we'll go from there because then we want to figure out how to coordinate that with our hat. So tell us three of the hot designs you have right now at Harlem Heavens Hat Shop.
3: Well, the first one is uh, a turban, which is uh, a black silk turban, and I also have a black velvet toque, or or a bit of a crown type, and then I have feather fascinators, little head pieces that are whimsical, that have sequins, and all kinds of fun elements to them, shiny elements. Uh, I think years ago, we used to call them cocktail hats, but... The little fascinators have been around forever, and they're more popular than ever. And then we have a coordinating mask. So um, I believe that whatever hat you're wearing, you should match the mask because it's, it's more fluid, it's more elegant, and it just doesn't look mismatched. So um, for that really lovely coordinated look, a mask has become an important accessory. So coordination is key. We need to uh, sometimes match patterns. I have made some turbans in beautiful prints with these same exact fabric masks. I even did some dressier styles with uh, wide brims that someone might want to wear to church or to a wedding in a beautiful brocade with a matching mask and the same fabric. And I've also done some pillbox, some classic pieces, with veiling, uh, you know, a little knitted veiling, and a matching mask as well.
1: well I love it, and we should tell everyone the uh, Center of Disease Control recommends that masks have at least two layers of fabric uh, to reduce the spread of COVID-19. Um, that are being worn out in public. So I know you sent me a mask, which was this wonderful uh, denim. I posted on Instagram a few months ago. Definitely was two layers of fabric. I assume that's how most of your masks are uh, designed. Are they? Yeah.
3: We asked ask for is... a few
1: questions. We asked for uh-huh. a few questions in our grab bag. Can
0: okay. we ask you a few
1: questions? So, uh, Lorraine, who couldn't be on the show tonight, our poet, uh, she has a sick cat, so she couldn't make it, was wondering, like, uh, is straw appropriate to wear in winter, a straw hat? And are there any other um, substances with hats that you should avoid when you're changing seasons from autumn to winter?
3: Well, straw is definitely for summer and hot weather. It is not a winter hat. But we do have hats that I call transitional hats. They're not wool and they're not straw. They're made out of fabric. And a fabric hat, or uh, I make some hats out of grosgrain ribbon, still a fabric. But a fabric hat can be transitional as well as all year round. So wear a fabric hat when the seasons are in, in the middle of changing.
1: Okay, and then Michelle from New Haven said that she has a bunch of her mother's old hats, but her hat is a little bit bigger than her mother's. Is there a way to make a hat bigger?
3: Uh, Yes, you have to have them professionally stretched. Um, I do uh, have a stretcher. Uh, And uh, most hats, if they're wool, can be stretched a bit. Some cannot, but most of them can. You know, they can always email me a photo of a hat, and I can let you know right away if it's possible to sketch it. So what
1: got you involved in wanting to design hats to begin with? What was the inspiration?
3: Well, I, I graduated from FIT, the Fashion Institute of Technology, here in New York with a degree in fashion marketing and textiles. So I knew I was going to work in the fashion industry, but I started out more or less in corporate fashion. I worked behind the scenes. I worked in a buying office. I worked for an accessories company. I worked for this fabulous sculptor from Israel who started designing belts and handbags. So I worked in other areas, but all during this time, I always made these fun little hats for myself. And I, every time I'd wear my hat, they would get so much attention. Everybody wants to know, where'd you get this? Can I get one? So my aunt, uh, uh, who always was ready to uh, start a new small business, was, uh, said, make up a few of these. Let's do one of these pop-up markets down in Soho. Let's test them. So the hat sold out immediately. So we would do these little markets here and there, and then I decided to actually quit my corporate fashion job and become a hat maker, a milliner, a self-taught. Uh, you know, we opened up a small shop together, my aunt and I, and that was over 30 years ago. So the hobby became the profession.
1: And it's a tight, when I see you in at Easter, it's a tight little community of milliners right i mean there it just seems like you have such a strong bond with other milliners is that true uh
3: yes i am on the board of directors of the milliners guild and we are an organization of hat designers and hat makers all over the country uh um, most of us are here in new york and we march together at the easter parade because the hat industry really is a small industry My particular industry of handmade hats, we're not really talking about, like, mass-produced factory hats. We're talking about the art of millinery, where you're sitting down, hand-making hats that may be just one of a kind. Or, you know, you may do multiples, but most of the time it's one of a kind. So it is a small industry, and most of us know each other. And it's great to be a part of the gill so we can share information and share skills. And it's, it's, it's just a great organization.
1: Okay, well, here's a million-dollar question. You know, Aretha Franklin uh, made headlines, or her hat did, at a past inauguration. It actually had a Twitter account, Aretha Franklin's hat. Kamala Harris is going to be attending the inauguration in January what hat should she wear, or you could choose to tell us what hat you would have put on her this past Saturday night in her um, acceptance speech, or her, I should say, vice president-elect speech.
3: Well, let me start by saying that Aretha Franklin's assistant actually called me to make her a hat for the inauguration. <laughs> so, did you make that hat? Uh, I did not make that hat. I was actually... On my way to the inauguration, they called me very last minute, like two days before. And I was just making plans to get out of New York City and head to D.C. So it was a little too late for me to make her something. And I I really couldn't just do it that quickly. And it was disappointing because the hat became so famous. I really should have just dropped everything and sent her a hat because the hat ended up, like uh, like you said, with its own Twitter account. But uh, getting back to Kamala Harris, I'd love to see a little fascinator on her. I think she'd look terrific in a little mini headpiece, like, a, you know, a little whimsical little headband of sorts.
1: So when, like, she was in all white or cream on Saturday, can she wear any color or is that just she would have to wear white? You know what I mean? Or does her shoes have to match her hat? Or, you know, walk us through that. That's an issue for anybody.
3: Well, the shoes don't have to match the hat. And since she was wearing that lovely cream in honor of our suffragette, um, she really could wear almost any color hat because the hat can become the focal point. So the other uh, parts of the ensemble can matching and the hat can be on its own. I would I love have it. loved to right. see her so, something, you know, in in the pink or fuchsia family would have been gorgeous on Yeah, her. Like
1: a blush, right? Like some kind of blush. Oh, it would have been lovely that that, that mm-hmm. color on her on her blouse which was so beautiful. All right, so that was the glam more. Let's talk about the fear less. I know you're living with type 2 diabetes. You've been living with it for several years now. How does fashion influence your ability to manage your diabetes?
3: Well, I think that I, I could never be depressed about it because I'm always busy, you know, getting ready for the next fashion show or a stylist has called me and they're getting ready to do a shoot. We just did a shoot for Italian Vogue. I, in March, I had a full page in Vogue, the issue with Billie Eilish on the cover. So I am so busy going from one project to the next, and I enjoy the fashion industry, and I have to take care of myself to keep my energy levels up and keep up with all these very, very young people in the industry. And uh, you have to be fearless. You really do.
1: And, and what are, I mean, those are long hours. Uh, that's a lot of time, I think, when you get so focused on fashion. Sometimes you're not really in your own mind space and thinking about your numbers or your blood sugars. So how how do you balance that? Has that ever been an issue where, you know, I, I know long hours from working in the entertainment industry. You can't really focus on yourself so much. Sometimes you, you're focused more, like you said, on the deadline or the excitement of the photo shoot. Well, I
3: really try to be careful now. Uh, I I think the one thing that uh the pandemic and and being at home for four months really, really taught me is I got a, a better handle on my food prep and and just making sure I made a lot of healthy dishes, a lot of vegetable dishes and I I sort of it sort of it, it, it really improved my, my eating speed my eating and and my whole diet just just having that time at home to really really learn better ways of eating so that's the one thing that has come out of it for me and now it's nothing for me to prepare my lunch and take it to work with me as opposed to you know ordering from any takeout in the area so i've gotten so much better
1: I love that. that's great news. All right, I have two more questions before we wrap up. The first one is, um, I want to talk about your aunt Eve. you mentioned her earlier. She was such a powerful, graceful, graceful, stylish woman, and she really to me, represents this era of flair and sophistication in marvelous women of color. And I when you think back to who she was and the way she carried herself, it was just so Wonderful. Just tell us a little bit about your aunt. We haven't spoken, uh, we haven't seen each other in quite a while. I, I just always think of her. She's just, I don't know, she's like a diva icon to me for, for many reasons.
3: Well, I'm going to start with the very, very early days when I was a little kid. We're going to say uh, like late 60s and early 70s. You know, she was actually a registered nurse, and she worked in cancer research at Sloan Kettering most of her career and then at the uh, VA hospital uh, after that. But she was a a sorority uh, member. She was very, very social. And she was really, really into designer, fabulous clothing. And she attended a lot of social events. She owned lots of evening gowns. And each event back then was like amazing prep. I can remember her getting a lot of things custom made and I'm, you know, I'm say maybe I'm about 10 years old and I'm watching her getting dressed for one of her parties and she has on a floor length silver foil gown. It's actually made out of quilted paper. So this full length paper gown and it's silver and then she has on a silver wig to match so i was 10 years old and i had already kind of started my own little business i was making earrings so she really saw my talent early on so she saved some of the silver fabric from this silver ball gown and gives it to me and tells me to make her some big silver earrings so the most fabulous thing I've ever seen is her stepping out in this silver quilted paper ball gown, big silver wig, and my silver earring. So that's the kind of aunt I had. Each event was glamorous. I mean, she wore things like a fur sweater and a matching fur miniskirt. With that, we used to call them go-go boots with boots. I mean, she was so, so stylish. And she really, really did see my talent early on, and she nurtured it. I I can remember for Christmas when other kids got dolls, she would give me a jewelry-making kit. She would get me a handbag leather-making kit. And, I mean, all of these things brought me to where I am now, a hands-on, handmade, self-taught milliner. So I really, really have to thank her for that. I I always feel like between her and and my other family members, uh, my godfather was Kermit Morgan and his partner, Carl Davis. And back in the 80s, they owned the swankiest men's clothing store on the Upper West Side. It was called Le Mans. And if you were a man who was into fashion back in those days, that's where you shop. NBA players and, uh, you know, Bill Cosby and, you know, the mayor of Atlanta, you never, you just never would know who you would see in that store. And I hung out there every day after school while I was going to FIT. And I would run around the store and help the men pick out their neckties and their silk pocket squares and and i just learned about customer service and i always say i was trained by the best so i'm really just carrying on that tradition
1: yes you are and and, uh you'll be carrying that on we should tell everyone november 16th through the december 22nd i mean december 2nd excuse me uh brian park you're gonna have a pop-up shop right here in new york city But everyone wants to know where they could shop online anytime. What's your website, Avetta?
3: My website is harlemsheaven.com, H-A-R-L-E-M-S-H-E-A-V-E-N.com. My store is up in Harlem on Adam Clayton Powell in the corner of 147th Street. But I have a wonderful opportunity that I'm going to be in Bryan Park with my own pop-up shop for two and a half weeks. And it's a wonderful, wonderful program uh, sponsored by uh, Bank of America. They chose only four small businesses out of thousands of applicants, and I was one of the four. So I am so grateful and so excited. So I want everyone to come and visit me down in Bryant Park at the pop up. I
1: am. And I'm going to, well, we're going to raise a glass of tea to you on Tuesday because you're going to be our special guest on our. Diva Biddick Tea Party celebrating National Diabetes Awareness Month. Thank you so much for joining us tonight, Yvette. I appreciate it so much.
3: Well, thank you for having me. Um, good night, everybody.
1: <laughs> All right. Well, um, now to Michael Walden, who uh, scored multiple plat- uh, platinum successes, Worked with uh, Risa Franklin Whitney Houston And Angela Beaufiel On that album He managed uh, With Angela He managed to help her score A top five dance hit From 1983 Too Tough Here's the t- title of uh, That's the title of our next song Let's listen to Too Tough by Angela Beaufiel Two
0: Night. I'm Mr. Dubeck,
1: and I was getting my groove on to that song. Sorry, it was really—I really, really was. <laughs> well, I have to because I'm celebrating National Diabetes Awareness Month with all of you, and I'll be celebrating World Diabetes Day uh, on Saturday with everyone in Philadelphia and beyond, virtually as well as on Tuesday night. Uh, and check out that event, our Dubeck D at Ben Bright. I also just want to remind everyone that ANG Model Management will present Models in Diabetes on Saturday, November 14th on Facebook, so check that out. Uh, Right now, though, we're going to talk about what is tough. What's too tough is what my next guest uh, went through when they um, suffered a health crisis based on their heart. We had an exclusive interview coming up right now with the beloved uh, San Francisco drag queen who now resides in Palm Springs. It's Mother Chaka. Uh, I read about Mother Chucka on Twitter, on the American Heart Association's website, and I was so taken with the way that she's using the art of drag to help educate people about heart health. Uh, that I was, I reached out to her, and we got an exclusive interview with Mother Chukka. So we're going to listen to that right now. Here's my exclusive interview with Mother Chukka about uh, being a heart health advocate. Statistics on heart disease are a real drag. Heart disease is a leading cause of death in men and women in the United States, with about 655 Americans dying from heart disease each year, according to the Center of Disease Control. Although these stats could get you down... Why not get diva with my next guest, who happens to be one of the most iconic fixtures in San Francisco's legendary drag scene. Please welcome Mother
5: Chucka. Hi, Mother Chucka. How are you?
1: We're great. Thank you so much for joining us tonight.
5: I, it's my pleasure.
1: Now, I read all about your story on American Heart Association's Twitter feed, um, and as the hostess of the drag review, Sex, Drags, and Rock and Roll in San Francisco, I would assume that you would be one of the most colorful ambassadors in heart health. So take us back to 2016 and what uh, the beginning of what led you to become such a wonderful heart health advocate.
5: So it really started in 2015. I went on a vacation and I went swimming uh, outside the country after a rainstorm and I got some parasites. And I felt the parasites and... Uh, we'll talk about this more later when we talk about just medical stuff in general, but uh, my doctor didn't really believe me that I had the parasites. And so it kind of dragged on for about three months until they eventually got treated. But at that point, my health had started to deteriorate. Um, I uh, was always kind of heavy, uh, although I did a lot of exercise and I stayed in pretty good shape. Um, I I started having uh, shortness of breath and, uh, I would, uh, ha- you know, I would have to be sleeping sitting up. I couldn't sleep laying down. I would have trouble breathing. Um, you know, I had some symptoms, but I continued to walk and do exercise and stuff. So I didn't think anything was really wrong with me. I just thought I was getting old. <laughs> and then um, over Fourth of July weekend, I had just come back from a work trip to Europe, It was my first one ever, and I'd gone to London and Paris. And in Paris, I walked about. Uh, 20,000 steps a day and in doing that uh, it turns out I had uh, caused a blood clot that was in my low, the lowest ventricle of my heart uh, to uh, a piece of it broke off because I had gotten the blood flowing so well with the 20,000 steps uh, and it went into my kidney and it killed a part of my kidney and it made me super duper sick uh, and so I ended up in the emergency room over the weekend. And they couldn't really figure out what was wrong with me. They kept thinking it was a kidney thing. Uh, and then it turned out that it was a heart thing. <laughs> uh, I was in the hospital for about 15 days uh, with cardiomyopathy. Eventually, they did a, um, a cardioscope uh, uh, test where they went in through the artery and looked into my heart. And that's how they discovered the blood clot.
1: Did you have any family history of heart disease before? I mean, did you have any prior knowledge or even suspecting uh, in any way, shape, or form that something might be happening to your heart?
5: I mean, there was some sporadic stuff. So my grandmother had had a stroke, but she was in her 80s at the time. Uh, she did go blind and eventually, uh, years a couple of years later, passed away from the complications. Uh, my dad had had a heart issue and a stent put in. In his 60s, uh, late 60s. And then, and that was really it for heart stuff. I mean, no, no, there's not, I I have uh, sisters who are less likely to have a heart attack than me just because they're women. Uh, And my dad has only a sister. And my mom seems to have a heart of steel. So she seems to be able to withstand anything. So I, I think maybe I got a strong heart from her, but it was just complicated by. Circumstance.
1: Okay, so now I just want Although to get I, everyone to get into your head space. So now take us forward again. I, I didn't mean to cut you off before.
5: You, and sorry about that. What I did want to throw in was I, I did have high cholesterol off and on, and I was probably on cholesterol medication, you know, some kind of cholesterol pill at the time. Uh, my blood pressure was always kind of on the border because I was heavy, but I did a lot of exercise, so I kept it down. I managed it through exercise. Uh, before you know the heart problems resulted in me having to take medication for it. Uh, my personal headspace, I mean, you know, I had had an EKG probably when I was fifty. It was great. My heart was in great shape. I mean, I exerc- You know, I biked to work for twenty-five years that I was in San Francisco, or thirty years almost, because um, I even did it before I got here. Uh, I and mean, if I wasn't biking, I was walking. I would sometimes bike to work and run home. I mean, I was a great, sh- you know, I was heavy because I ate a lot. I used all that exercise as an excuse to eat whatever I wanted. But I did a lot of exercise, and my heart was in good shape until something caused a problem with it.
0: <laughs>
1: but as you said in the article, you felt like you were at death's store at that moment. So I'm just kind of curious because, like you said, you felt like you were in pretty good health. But you're also leading this very active life uh, with flair and dazzle, where you're working late nights as an entertainer. You're around alcohol, cigarettes. I mean, the name of your show is Sex, Drags, and Rock and Roll, which kind of goes <laughs> plays to that lifestyle. So, how did you? I mean, how did you respond to that? You know, be that wake up call, so to speak. And then, you know, like many of our listeners have trouble adapting a new habit how did you start to change because you you really you know the lifestyle of an entertainer isn't really conducive to I would think a heart health lifestyle
5: certainly cardiomyopathy will change it for you <laughs> so I didn't I it wasn't an, it wasn't a choice I, I didn't have the energy to get out of bed so there was not going to be any entertaining so you know I mean. I, I didn't make a, a slow change. like And in, in lots of other things in my life over the years, I've conquered smoking cigarettes and, and other things. I did a slow change. This was more of an abrupt change because I had to go on warfarin. I had a blood clot. Uh, warfarin affected my my digestive system. And uh, basically, I had a diet not to be close, but I had diarrhea for about a year. Uh, and so I could eat whatever I wanted. I was eating about... 10,000 calories a day and losing weight. It was kind of amazing. But that was just the immediate thing. As soon as my body started to get healthy again and go back to normal, the weight came back on very quickly, but I still didn't have the energy back. So it was really like step by step. I mean, it just takes time, right? So first, I lived on a third floor walk-up. So first, I would do the stairs. I would go up and not up and down the stairs. I would just do one stair, go up and down it, up and down it, up and down it, up and down it, you know, 10 times a few times a day. Then you get to be a little better and I would do the whole stairs, the, the whole stairway. From there, I walked around the block. That took three months. You know, even doing it like a few times a day. I, I, I literally slept 18 hours a day. I mean, I could not stay awake. I had no energy. Everything was, I mean, walking to the kitchen to the sink was an effort. It was rough. But then, you know, once you come out of it, or you know, you start to you start to feel like you're on the mending side of things. We talk a
1: lot at diabetic about accepting your diagnosis, and so in those days, like you're saying when you're sleeping eighteen hours, you're walking up the same uh, same step repeatedly, that's a huge one eighty from your your former life what What got you through?
5: <laughs> it's hard to say this, but I've had, I've had uh, a lot of health problems over the course of my life that weren't heart-related at all. I have had to come back from some pretty serious operations in the past. I had a six-and-a-half-hour operation at one point. The anesthesia from that, you know, kicked my butt so that it took me months to recuperate and come back. So I had had some experience recuperating and coming back from stuff. And coming back when you know people didn't necessarily think it was going to be able to be uh, as good as possible, I also have a sister who has cerebral palsy, and you know the doctors, what they predicted for her and her life was not what happened at all. I mean, she lived a normal life and went to school and got a driver's license and married and all the things that everybody else does. But when she was two years old, they told my parents they would be supporting her um, in a hospital for the rest of her life. so, I've I've grown up disbelieving doctors who have dire predictions, and I had my experience with my own health problems. So that combination, when these heart guys told me I was never going to come back, and you know I was going to have to be an old, you know I was going to start to be like. Uh, behaving like an older person because I wouldn't have energy or, you know, my heart wasn't going to be able to sustain the lifestyle that I had before. Well, I just thought, F you, man. I'm going to, one step at a time, I'm coming back. And I did. Once I got around the block, then I went two blocks. And then I went to the BART station. And then, you know, eventually, before I left San Francisco, even during COVID, I mean, I, I twice a week I walked, from my apartment to the Embarcadero, which is three and a half miles, which I don't think that they would have predicted as many that in 2016, or at least it's not the impression they gave me.
1: Talk, talk a little bit about the power of drag and how that affected this journey in heart health for you, because you've been doing drag, as I understand it, for several decades. So how, how you know, we uh, yeah. all watch RuPaul's Drag Race. How does that, how does that play into motivation? empowerment, encouragement with your physical issues regarding your heart?
0: So,
5: I mean, I personally love drag. I've always loved drag. And it inspires me every day. Uh, my brain, if I hear a song, I think of a number. I see fabric, I think of a dress. I look at hair and, I, you know, I'm constantly looking through magazines and picking out hair that I want to, you know, make bigger and better in my own. And even in my recuperation, you know, I, uh, the, the, the feeling and the energy and the reaction that you get from an audience and, uh, you know, sometimes I do straight drag numbers, but a lot of times I do more creative or artistic or political or any, kind, any number of different kinds of performances. And so the reactions of people and, and how they respond to that feeds you and it gives you energy and it, I mean, it feeds my soul. And so I couldn't wait to get back to it. I mean, I was physically somewhat debilitated, so I had to modify what I could do or I had to, you know, I've always been one of those people that figured out a way to make what I wanted to do happen if for some reason it couldn't happen. I've been doing numbers with puppets for 20 years because people didn't show up for rehearsal or didn't show up to the show, so I just used a puppet in their place when we were doing a duet.
0: I mean, so
5: it made me want to get out of bed. I mean, I couldn't wait to get back in the dress. I couldn't wait to get into makeup. I couldn't wait. I couldn't wait to talk about or express my journey, my health journey in drag. How do people
1: respond to you? sharing your health journey in drag. Did both men and women respond? Like, tell us a little bit about that.
5: Yeah, I addressed, you know, my opinion or my political opinion about the medical establishment or, uh, or just, you know, my own resilience and coming back and, you know, having someone give you a dire prediction and then turning it around and six months later, they're at your show. <laughs> People react fine. I mean, you know, I've never been really, I'm, you know, I've never really hidden anything. So, uh, I mean, I had multiple operations for tumors even, you know, 10 years ago. Uh, I was in the hospital for 10 days and had a half a million dollar operation for this crazy tumor that I had. It was called a it was very. I mean, everybody knew it was public. I wore scarves for six months, and <laughs> that was that. So, you know, I don't. I mean, all my health ailments are public because there's no hiding it so far.
0: <laughs>
5: and I'm just curious, like, because you you seem so upbeat
1: and friendly. Obviously, laughter and humor has also been part of your journey. Is that is that true? And if so, is that do you feel that's an important uh, part of the, the journey for someone who might be dealing with a heart heart issue is listening tonight
5: without a doubt. laughter is the best medicine it, without a doubt is the best medicine, and I do laugh all the time uh, I think i 'm hysterically funny i 'm my own biggest fan, but not just that I mean I, you know I have a dark sense of humor i I, I laugh at life uh, you know twenty twenty is the ultimate joke right you know if you want to make you know if you want to see if the universe has a sense of humor, make plans I mean that is the epitome of twenty twenty So you've got to laugh at everything that happens. If if, if you're thwarted, pivot. Uh, I think, I don't know if we talked about it, but I have actually left San Francisco for a while. Uh, I don't have to go back to work for at least probably a year. I mean, I'm working from home. So I'm right now, right outside of Palm Springs. I was in my apartment for six months. And uh, as we've talked about, I just spent a year in my apartment in 2016 recuperating from an illness. And I just didn't want to sit there for another year locked in that apartment with the smoke from the fires rolling through, which is also bad for your heart. So I pivoted. I uh, took a a smart investment and uh, turned it into cash and bought a house down here. And now I live in the desert next to a hiking trail, and I got a dog, and I have a pool. (laughs) And I've been here for six weeks, and I've lost 20 pounds, and my blood pressure dropped 20 points.
1: Incredible. And I love what you do because I just, I, you know, when I saw it, it was like a bright, shiny light to me, encouraging with me with my own work. And I just, um you know, it's, I get a thrill just talking to you. I just want to end the interview, interview by just asking you, like, what words of inspiration would you give to someone right now who's probably listening and is kind of at the end of their rope when it comes to hope? I mean a lot of times when your body lets you down takes a lot to get back up And I just want what, what words or what favorite diva song Or what would you recommend to someone Right now to lift their spirits And have them try again tomorrow
5: You know what One step in front of the other I mean that's what I would say Pardon my profanity but Just take the step Not taking the step is doing nothing Take the step if, I mean if you're If you're having problems with your health, sometimes it's out of control. Sometimes it's not. If it's in your control, just take that first step. If you fail, take it the next day. I mean, I tell people this all the time. I quit smoking a thousand times before it stopped. It just kept doing it. I mean, every day I started with, I quit smoking. (laughs) I mean, but eventually I didn't. And, And now I haven't smoked for far longer than I ever smoked. Uh, But I mean, with anything, you know, and all those diva songs that I love are the ones where they're surviving, where they go on, where they overcome adversity. And I don't mean to be silly, and I'm not minimizing it at all, but that's what I want to put out into the world, and that's what I want anybody who's out there who's Unhappy in any way i mean i 've raised money for suicide prevention for years i' worked with the leukemia and Lymphoma society i've raised money for cancer i've raised money for alzheimer 's. The Heart Association was another group that I came into contact with and did some stuff for them and you know I ended up I was hosting a bingo thing for the heart association and in the conversation, you know, you have to keep talking when you're hosting Bingo. So I talked about my heart, and that's how the whole social media campaign came about. I mean, you just got to keep going. I mean, people are going to tell you you can't do it. Doctors are going to tell you. Your friends are going to tell you. Come them all. Anybody can do anything they set their mind to. It's one step at a time. Whether it's, you know, you want to cure cancer? Go to college and become a doctor and get your butt moving. Otherwise, don't whine about it.
1: Very nice. Thank you, Mother Chucker, for joining us tonight. We might have to bleep out a
0: couple things, but we love it.
1: Sorry. You. All right. That was our exclusive interview with Mother Chucker. I hope you take away some of that glamour, fearless attitude uh, that she shared with us. And right after we play our next song, Patricia Abbey Gentle is going to come back and talk to us a little bit about the connection between heart and diabetes. But first, We're going to listen to more music from our November musical icon. She's a native New Yorker of Cuban and Puerto Rican descent. Angela Beaufield was one of the first Latinas to score many crossover hits in the urban pop world. Here's another one of the hits off of her essential Angela Beaufield album entitled, I Do Love You, Courtesy of Sony Music.
0: Let's listen. Welcome back to Diabetes
1: Late Night We're going to end the show by talking to our very own Patricia Addie Gentle about the connection Between heart health And diabetes uh, Patricia, Mother Chukka Really went into A lot of detail about her own health Issues, you heard a lot in that interview um, Before we get into heart And diabetes, were there any Takeaways that you wanted to uh, Talk about?
4: Well <clears throat> The one thing that I can add to that is that having heart problems or heart issues is not uncommon in the U.S., and so we all need to be in tune to our heart, and we need to take symptoms seriously, and whether or not there is a pre-existing a uh, problem that may indicate that the heart may soon become affected or that you already have a diagnosis of something going on, regardless if there is any type of a problem that might even resemble that it could be the heart, it's it's a symptom that should be actually explored and looked into. And so glad that Mother Chuck uh, did get the care that he deserved and, and got, taken care of.
1: I agree. All right. So at the top of the show, uh, we're going to be talking about metabolic syndrome because that seems to go, you hear that term a lot around heart disease, stroke and type 2 diabetes. What is metabolic syndrome? I know it's making a lot of inroads within the healthcare profession and and being something they share a lot about more on social media.
4: Well, metabolic syndrome is actually – different, various types of of diseases or conditions that are kind of clustered together and it puts you at risk for heart disease. And those conditions may include having high blood pressure, having uh, high blood sugars, excessive fat around the waist, and high cholesterol or high lipid levels. So Um, If a person smokes, if there are other existing conditions, um, maybe even diabetes, because we're saying that metabolic syndrome, you don't have to have diabetes to be in that cluster, but you will have higher blood sugars most of the time. But any combination of those is actually the metabolic syndrome.
1: And what can you do about it?
4: Lifestyle, almost everything that happens in metabolic syndrome can be uh, counteracted or at least dealt with or improved with some lifestyle changes. So we're talking about eating better, changing the way we eat, changing the way we sleep, uh, making sure we get adequate numbers, decreasing that stress, uh, resting, being able to lower the blood pressure, all those things come those things come into play together when you start thinking about stress and hormone levels, uh, the adrenaline, the insulin levels, because most people with metabolic syndrome also have insulin resistance or a condition whenever your insulin is not being used, so your body's not metabolizing or burning the um, Sugar that we put into our uh, Into our system is not Being converted to energy And so that's where Metabolic syndrome comes from
2: You know And and
1: it was interesting in that interview Because he did mention That he smoked So even though he didn't have a family History of heart disease um, You know he was an Avid smoker which uh, And as you just stated That is a um, Uh, that could be a cause for metabolic syndrome. And I just think it's interesting because we do spend a lot of time trying to connect the dots for people. And I feel like going back to what we talked about at the top of the show, where, you know, you meet people who are just diagnosed as a nurse and you have to give them comfort. A lot of times they're always wondering why yesterday I didn't have diabetes, but today I do. And it's just important to me. Um, I just want to get your thoughts on that, about connecting the dots and how something like smoking does put you at risk at other things, like you said, with the cholesterol, the type 2 diabetes, high blood pressure, and so on.
4: Absolutely. And we already know that um, with those high blood sugars and high lipids, plaques form in in the vessels, and so that narrows the area where blood is actually flowing And so when you're smoking, with nicotine coming into play, that's kind of constricting those vessels and making them even a more narrow uh, stricture. So you have a lot of resistance in the vessels from the high blood pressure, the high cholesterol, from the um, smoking, and all of those um, when, when when there's a combination or multiple factors going into, you know, coming into play to cause the blood to have a difficult time flowing through the vessels. Then, of course, we're putting ourselves at increased risk for strokes and heart attacks.
1: And you know what? Uh, we're going to end it there. We're going to talk. We'll be talking more about that on the upcoming podcast. You know, Patricia, thank you so much for joining us tonight. I want to thank all our guests for being a part of tonight's show, helping us celebrate National Diabetes Awareness Month. Uh, next month, I know you're going to love this, we're going to have big band holiday sounds courtesy of Harry Connick Jr. on our uh, Diabetes Late Night in December. That's Tuesday, December 8, 2020, at 6 p.m. right here. Hashtag divabetic, hashtag diva top radio. Visit us on our Facebook page and my Mr. Divabetic YouTube channel. In the meantime, we're going to close the show with a uh, song I'm dedicating to Patricia today, which is called "I'm On Your Side." Remember, every diva, every dude has an entourage, and so do nurses. And I'm so glad to be part of yours. Let's get happy and healthy together. Thank you, everybody. Thank you.